right. First uh, John 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of God. You can be seated. And we'll dismiss our school-age kids. I think you're following Miss Heather back there. And as they're headed out, if uh, you brought a Bible with you or you have it on some sort of device uh, on your phone, I invite you to uh, turn to 1 John chapter 4. If you're not very familiar with where that's at, it's almost at the end uh, of the Bible. So go all the way to the end, back a few chapters um, and you're going to find uh, these epistles of John. Now, I've said before that John, uh, John uh, was one of the disciples. He calls himself the disciples whom Jesus loved. That was kind of the way they talked about him. John and Jesus did indeed have a special relationship. And, um, and John is the only living disciple at this point in which he is writing John's gospel John's letters, and then the book of Revelation. And so some 50 years had passed since the death of Jesus. And the church had grown, and it had multiplied, as we saw even uh, in the book of Acts. And uh, it had been pushed out of the city, really into the desert, um, into uh, the area around the Dead Sea, really all over. They had just really scattered and a lot of difficulty and division was actually happening in the church. Now, in today's world, it's hard for us to imagine difficulty and division in the church. But it happened here, and John clearly addresses it. And he starts in he, the, kind of the theme of, of, the whole, of the whole bits, of the whole book, is he wants us to understand that we are loved by God, and when we're loved by God, we freely love other people. If we're going to reduce all of it into that, that's what it is. He starts with a warning here, though, about the truth. You know, if there ever was a time of people wanting to know the truth, it seems like now is it. Through this last election cycle, through the past couple years, 
We've heard this idea of spinning the truth and knowing what the truth is and the truth can never be more important. And before there was ever news on cable networks, knowing the truth was still a very important thing. Jesus said of himself that I am the truth. And they're searching for the truth and sometimes the truth is hard to find. What's actually true? Just because you feel something doesn't make it the truth. Just because you heard it in church doesn't make it the truth. Just because a TV evangelist said it doesn't make it the truth. Just because it gives you warm fuzzies doesn't make you the truth. Just, just because it's accompanied by supernatural signs doesn't make it the truth. Just because it's part of the cultural narrative doesn't make it the truth. None of those things necessarily make it true. Now, sometimes those things do accompany the truth, and sometimes TV evangelists tell the truth. I, I hope they do. And sometimes truth does accompany supernatural signs. And I pray if you heard the word of God in our church that, it, that it's the truth. But John gives, the church, uh, gives this church a warning, and, and, and by way of that gives us a warning. Be very careful who you listen to. We're going through the Proverbs series back in the, uh, in the class, in the equipping class. We just started that today in chapter 1. He talks so much about how important it is who you listen to. He tells them in verse 1, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. For many false prophets have gone in the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, every true spirit that confesses Jesus Christ that he's come in the flesh is actually from God. He actually gives them three little signs to know if the person you're listening to is actually telling you the truth. And these are the three signs that he gives them uh, real quickly. One, that they, that they confess that Jesus coming in the flesh was the Lord. Now, we're not going to go into all church history, but this is really to combat a lot of heresies that had started in the church. There was this idea of modalism that had started in the church that said that, the, that, that there's no such thing as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were all just different forms of the biblical God. So when he created, he was God the Father. When he came to the earth, he was God the Son. And then when he ascended and indwelt us, he was God the Spirit. But Scripture doesn't teach that. It says way back in Genesis that the three had existed so in a part, he's trying to do that. He's, there was this other heresy that talked about begotten or bestowed power. We're not going to get into that necessarily today, but this is the first sign. If they don't confess Jesus in the flesh was actually the Lord, then they're not telling you the truth. Don't listen to them. If they speak of the world and to the world, he says, you shouldn't, you shouldn't listen to them. Verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Meaning that they use cultural advice. You know the advice of our day, the antichrist of our day, the false prophets of our day. They tell us things like, if it feels good, do it. If you want it, go get it. And then the third thing that, that he gives us here, the third way, is they contradict scripture. They contradict revealed scripture. He says in verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. He's speaking of the disciples, the authors of scripture, of the New Testament. Whoever is not from God doesn't listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
And so that's just a little warning. Remember, John's like your, like your godly grandfather, and, uh, and he's well in his years, and he had seen some amazing thing. And he's sitting down, you're, you're sitting over coffee with him, and he's telling you, hey, beware of this. Watch out for this. Then he says positively, if you're really a follower of God, you have his spirit. He says in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he gave us his spirit. Capital S, speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. The same one that Jesus alludes to that says it's better for me to go so the spirit can come. The same spirit that was in the Trinitarian dance in the very beginning. Wait, but pastor, how do I know if his spirit is in me? There's no like target scanner on the way out. You know those target scanners where you can kind of check the price and you can be like, how much is this really? You know those things? We don't have any of those. On your way out, you can't just, you know, slide your hand under that and be like, yep, he got the spirit. Nope, she doesn't. We don't have one of those. And so John's going to spend the rest of this chapter giving us evidence that would give us confidence that we are really children of God. One, he would say that you confess Jesus. And this one is still a bit ambiguous because even the demons confess Jesus, Scripture tells us. And we know that many people would confess the name of Jesus in thought only or name only, but not be real believers, not believe in it enough to put their weight into it. Matthew 7 says there's going to be many in the last day that will come and they'll actually point back to their miraculous deeds as proof that they are filled with the Spirit and headed to heaven. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now this is not written that it would confuse you, it's actually written that you would have clarity. So John includes two more. Not just that you would confess Jesus, it's part of it. Because John doesn't want you to have false assurance, but he clearly wants us to have confidence. He's going to say that a couple times in this passage. He said it twice in chapter 3 already. Wants us to have confidence in our position in the family. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest or revealed or incarnate among us. That God sent his only son to the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. We covered that a couple weeks ago. That just means final payment. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected, or that word, your translation might say, matured in us. So he's saying a lot of things. Let me boil it down to just this. You've heard this before. How do you know if your heart has been radically changed by the creator God through the death of Jesus on the cross and now indwelt with the Holy Spirit? How do you know? You love God and you love others. This is one of those times, the only times, where God is actually identified with one of his attributes. It says that, it doesn't say that God is loving, but it tells us that God is love. He himself is love. Every other attribute that he has comes from this source of love. He is just, 
because he is first love. Now, don't overread that. He's not saying the emotion of love is always God or that God's only attribute is love. What it does show us is that the core of God's being is this idea of love. And if self-giving, self-sacrificial love is not at the core of who we are, then there's no way that God is in us. That's John's big idea. It says in verse 9, he shows us the depth of the love of God for us. And this is the love of God. He was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And John goes on describing God's love. God's love was not just a feeling. It translated into action in which he saved us and it is defined by grace. God did the unthinkable. Have you ever met someone, a married couple, and asked them how they got engaged? Ask them how they met each other? Ask them about their love story? You should do that to your parents if you haven't already. It's always pretty unique, and we've made it a lot more probably glamorous and maybe overdid it, but it's just so cool. And you get kind of just wrapped up in this idea of the love story, and that's what John is trying to recall to our emotions even now, the love story of God for his creation, the creator God. After having been rejected by his creation, he could have destroyed us and started all over. But out of compassion, he chose to take the penalty of our sin on himself and suffer in our place. A king dying for unrepentant traitors, a creator dying for his creation, a betrayer, a betrayed lover offering himself as a sacrifice for the betrayer. Would any of us have done that? He certainly wasn't obligated to do it, and he didn't need to do it, but he wanted to do it. He didn't need us, he wanted us. So the defining characteristic of God is love, and the defining quality of God's love is the grace that he shows to us. And that's one of the things that we should just sit and meditate on and let it overwhelm us until it just permeates all of who we are. I love the ladies' retreat they did as they pressed pause. Because this is an effort of what they're trying to do. I want you to press pause of all you're doing and remember who you are. Charles Spurgeon, that famous preacher of the last century, said that if there were one subject that he could always speak of, but one he felt so utterly incapable of describing, it was the love of God. He says this, it makes me back away from this platform in one of his sermons. Utterly ashamed of my poor feeble words. This love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not in all of heaven itself. Martin Luther, the reformer. I think I have this one on the screen. If we had a full understanding of this love of God for men, a joy so great would come to us that we would promptly die because of it. From this we see how truly dull our hearts, that only, a few, that only few taste even a few drops of this immense joy, not to mention the whole ocean of it. A whole ocean of love. We needed a solo cup of love, and God washed over us with a wave of it, with the whole ocean of it. It makes me think about my kiddos, especially Hudson. When Hudson was real little, you know, we're a beach family. We just love the beach. We just try to go as many times as we can. We, we're not too picky about where it is. If there's ocean there, we want to be, we we be in it. And I remember taking all my kids. 
I remember taking Hudson, though, and uh, Hudson, real, I mean, just big waves, and he would lock those arms around me, and slowly he would want to get deeper and deeper and deeper, still clinging on to dad, and we would play this little game where we would jump over the waves or we would try to go under the waves. And I remember one time going under the waves and losing him just for a second. And he dropped a few more feet down and he could never touch the bottom. And I grabbed him and picked Hudson up and he said, Daddy, so deep, so deep. I said, buddy, if you only knew how deep it gets. This is what I think about when we think about the love of God. John is going to make this point ten different ways, a hundred different times in these letters. Literally, I think it's literally mentioned several dozen times, this idea about the love of God. And you're going to hear me say it in almost every sermon as we talk about this, that if you don't remember anything else from the sermon today, sociologists tell us you only remember about 10% of what I'm going to say today. If you're only remembering 10%, make it this 10%. It's verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The greatest sign that you know God and have been born of God is that you love. This brings assurance to your own heart and a supernatural sign to the world that Christianity is real. Beloved, if God so loved us in this way, sacrificial love, left heaven to redeem us, we didn't earn any part of it. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, we should Go love one another. You ever had your parents tell you what you ought to do? It's not a suggestion. At least it wasn't my house. My dad told me, hey, son, you ought to be nice to your sister. That means I, I better be nice to my sister or bad consequences are coming for me. This is what John is telling the church. If God has so radically loved us, the ocean of love, we ought to love one another. Now again, this would be so easy to dismiss because we flippantly use the word love. How many people would say, oh man, I, I love God and I love chocolate chip cookies and I love others and I love the beach and the LSU Tigers and the Dallas Cowboys. I, I love those things. But this is no flippant way. This, John doesn't let us get, get away off the hook so easy by just flippantly just saying that we love other people, that we love God. He defines the love of God and tells us that we should love in the same manner in which we are loved. In verse 9, it tells us, reminds us that he sent his son into the world, that love takes initiative. In verse 10, that he was the propitiation or payment for our sin. We know that love is sacrificial. We see that love initiates that love is sacrificial that love is covenant love and it lasts forever we can go on and on it's not dependent upon we act how we act it's unconditional but i thought maybe this morning the best way to interpret this idea of love is to interpret the bible with the bible so i want you to flip over to first corinthians 13 this is the love chapter and many of you possibly had this passage read at your uh, wedding (laughs) 
matrimony has stolen this passage, and it's good, but the time to read it is normally not at a wedding. They, they love each other all fine and well at that moment. It's, it should be a few months later that it's read. But this passage wasn't to, to romantic lovers. This passage was to the church. And just listen to this. This is just incredible. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now listen, Paul is getting at the heart of what real love is. You know, if we, if we were looking to hire someone and we were collecting resumes and someone sent in a resume that looked like these first three verses, it would be pretty impressive, would it not? Yeah, I just want you guys to know that um, I speak in the tongue of men and the tongue of angels. Well, that's impressive. Well, and I just, uh, a couple more things. I also have prophetic powers. And if that's not enough, I just want you guys to know that I understand all mysteries. If it's mysterious, I understand it. And on top of that, just, I, you know, I don't want to brag on myself, but I actually have all knowledge. If there's anything to know that I know it, and again, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I actually have all faith. As a matter of fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I had so much faith, I moved mountains out of the way. Well, I think me and Jason be on the edge of our seat like, man, we got to. We got to hire this guy, man. Tongues of angels, prophetic powers, moving mountains. Maybe he can just speak a building into existence. That would be amazing. Oh, just, just one more thing I wanted you guys to know. I actually have given everything that I own away. And I've resigned to deliver my body up to be burned for the sake of Christ. Well, let's, let's hire that dude today. But Paul says you could have all those things. And if you don't have love, you're nothing. Everything minus love equals nothing. And I feel like we, as a church, you know, when we're trying to learn to walk with God and we're trying to impress the other people around us, we we tend to lean on some of these strengths. I mean, I mean, I don't know how many of you have ever moved a mountain with your faith, but that'd be pretty. That'd be that'd be some good water cooler talk. That you should mention that in the foyer afterwards if that's really happened or had the prophetic powers of whatever, or that you understood all the mysteries. I would just like help understanding the Book of Romans. Not all the mysteries, just that'd be fine. Or Revelation about all the horns. Everybody's got horns. His point was that we could be the most prestigious when it comes to our friends and family in the religious community. But if we have love, all the gifts we have are worth nothing. And then Paul goes on and explains, again, this is not romantic lovers. This is the church. And not just the church like in these walls, the church, but like the Christian church. He tells us what love is. Because I feel like, you know, we're so good. 
We're so good at stepping out of the way of real conviction when it comes to Scripture. This, this passage, can I just be honest with you, has been so difficult for me this week. It has beat me up again and again. So much conviction in my heart as we describe what real love is. He says in verse 4 that love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing or evil, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Love never ends. So I want to talk about those just for a minute. And I want, I want you to evaluate your own love. Not necessarily for God. This is, this is a byproduct of loving God is his kind of supernatural love comes through you into other people. One, that love is patient. Your translation may say long-suffering. Patience is the ability to dwell gladly in the present moment when we would prefer not to. The ability to dwell gladly in the present moment when we would prefer not to. Love's not hurried. Again, often translated as long-suffering, it means that love has the ability to suffer difficulty for a long, 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 long time and not stop loving. Imagine in your mind the most unlovable person and hear the words of the Spirit that love is patient, that it's long-suffering. The ability to suffer difficulty for a long time and not stop loving. And God is committed to us growing into those kind of loving people. That's the passive side that it's not, that it's patient. The active side is that it's kind. Kindness is the active side of love. It actively pursues a better outcome for the one that you love. Again, think about the people you don't like, the people who've mistreated you, the brothers who you'd rather not see in Target, the sisters that you don't want to see at church. Do you actively pursue the better outcome for the one that you love? Can I tell you something? In my own heart, this took me two days. I'm just thinking of people that I, I want you to think I love, but I don't really love. And I had to repent of those things, and I had to ask the Lord, Lord, would you help me actively pursue a better outcome for that person? And then Paul lists eight things that love is not, or that it doesn't do. It does not envy or boast. Envy is literally the opposite of love. If you love someone, you rejoice in their well-being and success of that person. Think about the love for your kids, how we go crazy celebrating their accomplishments in life and school and recreation. Have you ever had to potty train a kid? Talk about celebration for a poopy. I mean, it, we would be texting each other. Like, Ashley would be like, hey, Claire pooped today. This is when she was little. She was little. <laughs> Ashley decided to potty train her on the way to youth camp. And I was like, babe, Seriously? And that's what it was. And you just get excited when your kids 
take a step or say a word or I mean you just you you celebrate them for for all the things that they get a participation trophy let's celebrate it man this is amazing when we love someone we constantly want to build them up but when we envy someone we constantly want to tear them down that's why the two can't coexist love and envy cannot go together you know the only way to deal with envy You can't just try hard to overcome it. You have to replace it with love. Where the love of God is, where the love of God is, the envy will not have a place to grow. It doesn't envy or boast. Love doesn't boast. When I'm boasting, I'm lifting up my strengths. I'm bragging on myself. Boasting is one of the tales that tell you that you're actually filled with envy. When you're boasting your own accomplishments, when you're telling your own fish stories, right? It's normally because you want to elevate yourself just a little bit more than those you envy. We could spend whole sermons on any of these words. I'm not sure I'd make it through it. It's just, it's so convicting. Love is not arrogant or rude. Real love only exists anonymously. Love gives because love loves to give. It doesn't give out of the sense of praise it can have for showing itself. It doesn't say, look at the way that I just love this person. It's not rude. Maybe your translation says dishonor. Love does not dishonor. Does not embarrass. Love is not self-seeking. This is loving so that we'll get something back from someone. Now, if we're real honest, this is what most of us do. This has been the standard of love for us. I'll love you if you'll love me back. That's just what we do. I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. I'll be kind if you'll be kind. I'll be generous if you'll be generous. That's, that's the framework of most friendships. It's also the framework of most marriages. And it's not real love. Jesus would go on to say that even the enemies love like that i'm not calling you to love like that even the lost love like that i'm calling you to love supernaturally real love is others focused if you ever thought they don't deserve my love then you've misunderstood love my friend real love doesn't take you into account Real love gives freely of itself in the same way that Jesus gave freely of himself to us. Man, I wish we had more time here. Love is not irritable. Man, this may have been, all these were the hardest ones for me this week. And I would just read them and I would just ask the Lord, Lord, is, is, is my love irritable? Yes, Luke, it is. We're gonna come back to that one. Or resentful. Maybe yours says, keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. This is where we get payback or revenge. You hurt me, so I'll hurt you. You hurt my kids, so I'll really hurt you. And, you know, we, we, we like to be good Christian folks, so we might not slash their tires, but we give them the cold shoulder. We don't invite them to the next party. We gossip them around them. We triangulate when we're in relationship with them and other people. 
we roll our eyes at them? Can you believe this person? Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Even the thought of some people frustrate us. We assume the worst of them. They get a promotion at work. We assume they cheated the system. But instead, he says it positively. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. What's the truth? The truth is that God actually loves that person that you hate. And he gave up his very son for them, just like he gave up his son for you. And they are clothed with his, his image just like you are. And they're wrapped in his glory just like you are. And one day, if you're true followers of Jesus, you're going to spend eternity with them. And wouldn't it be just like Jesus to put you in a house right next to him? Love is not irritable. This was, my soul needed to hear this. This is needed this needs to be said because life is full of irritants. An irritant is anything that causes frustration. An unreasonable boss, poor service at a restaurant, a relative being intentionally rude, a coworker throwing you under the bus. You're running late and somebody cuts you off and you give them a nice gesture of the hands. That's irritable. Irritability is a mood. A mood is deeply related to our spiritual condition. A, a mood lasts longer than an emotion. An emotion can come and go, but a mood seems to last all day. We have phrases that we describe these moods of irritability, like did you get up on the wrong side of the bed? You ever been in one of those irritable moods? Any confessors in here, irritable mood? Any of you in one of those today? You're saying, man, I wish this pastor would shut his mouth. Irritable. A mood is deeply related to our spiritual condition. See, we, we wake up irritable because we focus on all the frustrating things that are around us. But there's, there's a cure for this, that if we really believe that there's a good God who created everything, and this is what John's trying to get us to do. He's trying to get us to sit in the love of God to realize how much we've been blessed and given so that we would supernaturally overflow that love into other people's lives. If we believe that a good God actually created everything, that he works everything together for our good, and if that God is the person that Jesus described, a joyful and generous God, and I'm his beloved child and all my sins have been forgiven forever through his work on the cross and that nothing can separate me from his love, that he feeds and cares for the birds, how much more will he see and meet and my needs and care for me every step of, uh, of the way? And if I really believe, as the psalmist says, that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that because of the empty tomb, that anything is possible. That death itself has been robbed of its venom and its sting. And that God is able even now to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask or think. If I started every day with that, what kind of mood would I be in? Love and joy and peace would be the default mode of my mind and heart if I started my day like that. But we don't start our day like that. Most of us, we start our day with the news. The brokenness of the world. We start our day with social media, what everyone else thinks about us. 
we, we feed that idol. And because of that, we're irritable. So when someone cuts us off, we're not saying, Lord, bless him. I don't know what his day's been like. We say other words to him. Or if our son or daughter doesn't do what we wanted them to do, we fly off the handle. We kick, we kick the dog. The reason that love is not irritable is the thing it's tied to is that love is not resentful. Maybe your translation says love keeps no records of wrongs. Have you ever withheld love from someone else because they wronged you? Now, I'm not advocating that you stay in an abusive relationship. I'm not advocating that you don't guard your heart. Psalms tells us to guard our hearts. It's the wellspring of life. But to give the cold shoulder to a brother or sister, this is about the family, to a brother or sister in Christ because of something that we assumed their intent was, we kept a record of wrong. And love doesn't keep any records of wrongs. And certainly this is true in your marriage, right? You've been in an argument and your wife or your spouse brings up something that happened 11 years ago. Just my wife does. I'm just kidding. I'm not. She doesn't do that. She does. Wives do have good memories, though. I'll tell you that. They Most of us just carry the records of wrongs like a weight. And we wonder why we're so burdened. And we think that we have to repay the evil for evil, the hurt for hurt, the eye for the eye. Taking that scripture way out of context when Jesus says no. What, what does God say? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So we can love. We can freely give of ourselves even if people have wronged us. You know the cure for being irritable and being self-seeking and being arrogant and rude and boasting and envying. You know, it's just to sit in the love of God. That really is all it is. That if you've got a real burden, if you're carrying this weight this morning of someone who has done you so wrong, you know the best thing you can do is first go spend time in your prayer closet with the love of God. Isn't it amazing, the love of God as we see it through the person of Jesus? How on the night that he was going to be betrayed, how he washed Judas's feet. Isn't that crazy that Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus with clean feet? And Jesus just served him and loved him. Do you see why John keeps tying the two together? The love of God flows to us loving others in this specific way. He says in verse 11, beloved, this is why he keeps tying the two together. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, then people can start seeing God because he, 
God is seen through our love because, because God is love. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In verse 19, we love because he first loved us. God is not asking you to go out there and, and just grin and bear it and just try to love people who are unlovable. He says, no, 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 Luke, Luke, you got it all wrong. Remember, come to me. Yoke yourself with me. I'm going to do the loving through you. All you have to be is an open vessel. And I've had conversations like this with God all week. God, you know, I don't like that person very much. So, so I'm going to need a direct line of love coming through because I, I, I got nothing. And you know what? He provides it. You simply can't manufacture a love like this. This kind of love only comes from God through you onto others. And it's the reason that Jesus said the world will know that you're part of the way. The world will know that you've been radically changed by the gospel. The world will know that your lives uh, are, are upside down. The world's going to know not because you love me and sing songs to me and give to me. The world's going to know because you love others because that's the one tangible thing we can see. Because I don't know how much you really love God. You could do all the things and not really love him in your heart. But I know you can't fake loving other people very long. John mentions two things here that I, that I don't want to miss. Love drives out fear and replaces it with confidence. Look at verse 17. By this, love is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because he is, so also we are in the world. Because as he is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, again, because he first loved us. If anyone says in verse 20, we, you see that part about love driving out fear. If there's fearfulness in your life, it is not because of God. It's because of the enemy. It's because of the flesh. Perfect love casts out fear and replaces it with confidence. This is what John wants us to know, that we can have confidence that we're part of God's family. If anyone says in verse 20, I love God but hates his brother, tell us what he is, John. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. But, but what about the brother that took advantage of me? Or the brother that talked behind my back? Or the brother that's gossiping? And, now there's ways the church should deal with those things. But God says, you let me figure that out. I just want you to love them. It's inconceivable that we could encounter a power, a love so great, the ocean of love of God poured out on us that we've walked through grace to such an exponential extent and not be filled with love ourselves is what he's saying. Everything else is religion. If you've seen and tasted the love of God, it flows through you onto other people. If you say you love God but you hate your brother, John says, nope, you're a fake, you're a phony, you're a liar. Anyone who is given a glimpse by the Spirit into the love of God walks away staggering without words to describe it. This is why the people thought that the disciples were drunk early in the morning. What's wrong with those dudes? 
They've been drinking. He's like, no, it's early in the morning, bro. We've been filled with the Spirit, and it radically changes in this world who we are. King David in Psalms 103, I don't have words to describe it. Let's just let David describe it. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast, never-changing love for those who know him. Think about that, that he's saying, okay, how can we describe the love of God for us? Well, it's as high as the heavens are above the earth. Well, how do you measure that? That's going to take a really long tape measure. Think of it this way, to get to the edge of our galaxy, I kind of geeked out on some space stuff this week. To get to the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way, traveling at the speed of light, it would take us 100,000 years. And light travels at 186,282 miles per second. Which is so fast that in the time it takes you to snap your fingers, light travels around the globe six times. So traveling at the speed of light six times, it would take you 100,000 years to get to the edge of our galaxy. And astronomers believe that there are close to 80 billion galaxies in the universe, which amounts to almost 10 per person. By the way, most of which are so much bigger than our galaxy, the Milky Way. So I don't think you have to worry about running out of things to do when we get to heaven, right? To get to the edge of our universe, they say, if you are traveling at the speed of light, it would take you 15.5 billion years. I know you're healthy and uh, vegan and all, but you ain't going to live that long. And this is the analogy that God chose to measure his love for you. Does that not blow your mind? As high as the heavens are above the earth. I used to play this game with my kids. You know, we used to say, I love you to the moon and back, but then that wasn't, that wasn't enough. I love you to the moon and back, and then to Nana and Papa's and back, and then to the beach and back. And then it'd be my turn. And I would say, well, I love you to the moon and back, and then to Pluto and back. And then Hudson would say whatever he would say, or Clay or Elliot did this with all the kids. And Paul says, no, just... As far as you can, your astronomers can see with the greatest telescope, that just pales in comparison to the greatness of my love for you. Paul said that the love of God surpasses our knowledge. And if we could just get a glimpse, he says the height and breadth and length and depth of God's love for us. You know why the reason most of us aren't loving is because we just, we just really don't know how much God loves us. I was thinking about that, the depth of our love this week. I had this thought, if, if when you were single, you had to wear a little label around your neck, spelling out all your annoying characteristics, you know, like the little warning on the, the, the thing of cigarettes, the Surgeon General's warning. Warning, moody, overworks, is grumpy, likes to move houses frequently, ferocious morning breath, snores loudly, Sometimes won't get off the couch. You know, occasionally lies. If that was around the neck and you go to meet your blind date, how well is that, that going to go? You're probably never going to get a date. When we're looking for the one in whom we choose to love, it's kind of like a tryout. No one goes to a date with unconditional love. By definition, dates are conditional. We're going to check it out. And I've only experienced one love in my life that wasn't like that. And it was when I met my kids. You remember what happened to your heart the first time you saw your kids? 
I didn't say, hmm, I wonder if Claire is worthy of my love. No, I, I loved them unconditionally because they were mine. At no point in their childhood did I ever look at them and say, sorry, Claire or Ellie or Hud, this is just not working out. It's not you, it's me, but, but this is not going to work out. Actually, if anything, their faults made me love them more. I had compassion for them, and I wanted to help them in their weaknesses. And this is how God's love is for us. Tender, compassionate, unconditional, like a father with a child, but a few billion light years greater. One theologian put it this way. I want to end with this quote, and I'm going to ask you a couple questions. It is a small thing. Is it a small thing in your eyes to be loved by God? To be the son, the spouse, the beloved, the delight of the king of glory? Christian, believe this and think about it. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of the love which was from the everlasting and it will extend to the everlasting. Of the love which brought the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory. That love which was weary and hungry and tempted and scorned and scourged and beaten and spat upon and crucified and pierced. pierced. Love which fasted and prayed and taught and healed and wept and sweated, bled, died. That love will eternally embrace you. Friends, it's inconceivable that we could experience that kind of love, that amount of grace, and not be filled with love ourselves. We're not going to do communion today, but I do want to ask you four questions. This is the application. One, do you know the love of Jesus? I'm not saying, do you, have, you, have you read about it or learned about it in a... Sunday school class, or what, I'm not talking about just, just the knowing part of it. I'm think, talking about the heart of it. Do you really know the love of Jesus? Do you know that he did all of those things for you? Do you really know the love of Jesus? In your minds and in your hearts and in your soul, do you really know the love of Jesus? Before you go to the other questions, that's, that's the first. You just need to spend some time. It's too good to be true. It is. And if I have not walked in it and experienced it and it radically transformed my life the way it did, I wouldn't believe it. Do you know the love of Jesus? Second question, whom do you need to be reconciled with? Who is it? You know, the person that really gets under your skin, the brother or sister that you don't want to run into and target, that person. The person where if you're wishing a flat tire on someone, it's going to be on them. Or maybe worse. That's the clean version. We're wishing for a flat tire. You know, Jesus said, if you come to worship him, just leave your gift in the seat. If, you, if you've come to worship him and you realize that there's some angst between you and another brother or sister, whether you caused it or not, it doesn't say. It's just that there's something between you. Jesus says, you know what, I, I really'd rather you not even bring the gift, man. I really wish you wouldn't even sing the songs. They're just like clanging cymbals in my ear. Because you haven't done the simple thing that I put in front of you. And I said, listen, I want you to love the brothers and sisters. I want you to go love them. 
Oh, they betrayed you? Jesus says, yeah, they did that to me too. Oh, they, they've deserted you? Yeah, they did that to me too. Oh, they gossiped, tore you apart, made accusations against your family. Oh, they did that to me too. Go love them anyway, because it's not your love. Who do you need to be reconciled? Question three, what's your next move? What's the next move with those you need to be reconciled? You might have a long list. This might take you a while. It's fine. The Lord's patient. I found out if you don't actually make a a next move, you're not going to do it. So what's your next move and by what time? These are questions we ask on our DGs all the time. What's God asking you to do? When are you going to do that and what time? I just want to be able to pray for you and I want to follow up because it's easy for us to squirm us out of this. Self-justify. Pastor didn't know how bad I've been hurt. I'm not saying you got to be these people's best friend. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you got to love them with the love of Jesus. Had a friend come to me this week and he just said, man, I just, I'm just really struggling. I just haven't felt God's presence. I haven't heard God's voice. The more we talked, this, the very thing came up. I didn't even know I was really even going to teach on this. I just read it with the pastor a couple times. It's like, oh, that, that's the reason you haven't heard God's voice. He said, leave your gift in the seed and go reconcile, then come back. What's your next move and by when? I'm going to pray for us. My suggestion is that you do something before next Sunday. If you put on there 2043, I'm not sure you're going to get around to it. Listen, I'm not saying this is easy. I want to pray together. And I want you to still your heart before the Lord. And we're going to sing in a minute. We're not doing communion today. I just want this to be you and God. Would you have the courage right now to ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of God's love for you? You've heard me talk about it for an hour, but my words about his love are not near as powerful as his own words about his love. Would you just ask the Spirit to show you the love of the Father to you? Oh, it's powerful. And then would you ask him that question? Holy Spirit, who who do I need to be reconciled with? Make a list. Or just write the first name and just keep asking him, I guess. You know, someone that you don't love. And then what's, Spirit, what's my next move? Jesus, would you tell me my next move? Should I text them? Should I go call them right now? Do I need to go find them, go over their house? I need to pray about this for a day or two before I take a step so I can make sure your love is filling me up so that I can love them. What if they don't receive the love? What if they don't own their part? He didn't tell us that those were conditional clauses. He just says, I want you to love them. God, I love you and I thank you for the truth of your word and I thank you for your sons and daughters here today. And I pray, God, more than anything, that Covenant would be a church that radically loves other people. Certainly the brothers and sisters. We'll talk about the strangers later, but 
Lord, how can a church move forward in unity if we don't love each other? If we've taken a little offense and the enemy's made this stronghold in our life. All who are weak and heavy laden, Lord, I pray they find freedom in you, that they would take your yoke upon them, that they would learn from you, that they would walk with you, that they would let you carry the weight. Lord, that we would radically change the world through love. God, it's in, through your power and Jesus, through your name that we pray these things. Amen. I'll be in the back and another prayer team. Other members of the prayer team be back there if you'd like to pray with someone. You just keep talking to God where you're at. And we'll sing in just a minute. Ask, ask the Lord, Lord, what's my next move?